0: Welcome to the 180 Ministry Podcast. Please check us out at the1 80.org. All right, so if you have your Bibles with you, go with me to your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 8. We're going to go in John, chapter 8. And that's going to be our major focus for this message. We're going to be going here and there in Scripture, here a little, there a little, right? But at the same time, this is our major story. And so as we go into this message, I was thinking of Christ and what the Word of God and also the Bible refers to him as. In the book of John, chapter 1, you're in chapter 8, but in John, chapter 1, John starts off by saying, in the beginning was what? The Word, and the Word was not only with God, the Word was God, right? So we're seeing here that Jesus is God, just like his Father. And so as we look at this concept, I was thinking, man, John in all of Jesus' life, he's looking through his experience with the Son of God, and he's looking for a name that he can call Jesus Christ. And the name that he uses is the very thing that he saw lived out in the life of the Son of God. And that was the very word itself. The word there, when it says, and the, in the beginning was the word, the word there is actual Greek term that means all of the universal laws that holds the universe in place. And John says that all of these principles, all of these concepts, the one who made them became human. But it goes even more basic than that. As you read in the Spirit of Prophecy and even through many different scholars throughout history that have studied that term, the word, they have realized that it's not just the universal principles that holds all things together, but it is the very principles of the Bible, the very principles of God's Word, as was mentioned, that principle of love and how it is further broken down through the Ten Commandments and then further broken down through the rest of God's Word. All of those laws, all of those principles took on flesh in jesus christ and so this is a powerful truth that we are looking at here john when looking for a quote-unquote nickname for christ he says in the beginning was the word if there's anything that i think of when i think of the son of man it is the bible the word of god incarnate so as we look at this i was thinking man okay i'm understanding this john But as we go to John chapter 8, John breaks this down even more. And I want you to look at this, John chapter 8 and verse 12. John chapter 8 and verse 12. When you are there, say amen. John chapter 8 and verse 12. And this is what it says in John chapter 8 and verse 12. And we're going to go back and understand the context of this statement. It says in John chapter 8 and verse 12, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, This is to the Jewish people and also to the leaders. He says, I am the light of what? Of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of what? The light of life. So when we look up into the sky and we think of the light of the world in the natural world, what do we see? We see the sky, and in the sky, what's lighting it up? The sun, right? The sun is the natural source that lights up the world. But Jesus is saying here, in the spiritual sense, there is a greater light than the sun. And that light is the sun. Hey, I love that. I love that. I love that. So that light is the sun. So the, while the S-U-N gives light to the world naturally, it is the S-O-N, that gives light to the world spiritually. And friends, he shines even in his his natural beauty, friends. This is why I love the song. I think it's Trust and Obey. Um, It says um, his smile, speaking of the trials of life in that song, it says one smile from Jesus quickly wipes out the trials of life. It makes it possible to face the circumstances that we go through And I know that when we stand in glory with him one day, as we behold the light from his very person, it will be brighter than the sun itself. He is not only brighter than the sun spiritually, but friends, even in his natural revelation, he is brighter than the sun naturally. There is a day coming if we are faithful to the end that we will be able to behold that light. So Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So in other words, I came into the world to illuminate it. I came to illuminate the world. The question then should be concerning what? What do we need spiritual light concerning? Why is there a spiritual revelation that is needed? And so you have your Bibles in John chapter 8, right? But go with me in your Bibles now. Hold your fingers there in John chapter 8. And we've touched on this scripture before, but John chapter 1 and verse 18, I want to read this to you. And then we're going to read a statement here that will blow our minds. It says John chapter 1 and verse 18. All right, John chapter 1 and verse 18. It says there, no man had seen God at any time. That is God the Father. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, what has that Son come to do? He has declared him. So in other words, you see why Christ now came into the world. Christ came into the world to be its light, to reveal who? God. Christ came into the world to reveal his Father one day I'm going to make a message entitled The Great Controversy because what the Bible reveals to us, friends, and what history reveals to us is that the devil has come into the world to taint the minds of men concerning the true character of God. The devil has painted the Father with his own attributes, stern, exacting, judgmental, And what Christ came into the world to do is to reveal that while God, yes, has an exact account of whether we have transgressed his will or when we have kept it, the Father is merciful towards humanity. And Christ came to reveal that to the world. And what we're going to see here in John chapter 8 is how. You see, John chapter 8 and verse 12 is given in the context of a story. And so we're going to look at that story to understand more of this verse. Christ revealing the Father's character to humanity, that humanity might understand who God is, and in understanding who he is, be drawn to him. All right? So there's a statement here that brings this out, and I want us to look at this. This is found in our next slide, Desire of Ages, page 19. And this is a powerful statement, friends. All right? So in here, we're seeing this. This is what it says here. It says concerning Jesus being the word of God and the revelation of God, it says here by coming to dwell with us. Jesus was to reveal God both to whom? Men and and angels, interesting. He was the word of God. We saw that. But this is what this means he was the word of God, God's thought made woe. So Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, was God's thoughts given voice. God's thoughts spoken. So whatever God thinks, who do we then think of? Jesus. God's thoughts Made audible. That's how exactly Christ was in harmony with God's will. That his very life was just the life of living out what the Father was thinking. That is serious union. And friends, that's what God is calling each and every one of us to be. Do you know that? He's calling us to be so in harmony with the Father, so in harmony with Himself that our very life is but the living out of what God's thoughts are. So when men look at us, they see a revelation of what Jesus is. Friends, that's what God wants his church to be. And so we're going to see this, all right? So now go back with me in your Bible. So now let's go back a few verses. We're in John chapter 8 and verse 12. We're going back to verse 1. John chapter 8 and verse 12, John chapter 8 and verse 1, and we're going to look at a story here that illustrates this. God's thought made audible. What does God look like as he lives in flesh? How does he operate so we're going to see this towards mankind so john chapter 8 and verse 1 say amen when you are there okay it says jesus went unto the mount of olives why it states this in verse 2 and early in the morning he came again unto the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and taught them so let's break this down so it says jesus before coming to the temple verse 1 says where did he go Mount of Olives, this was a common theme of Jesus' life. He went to the Mount of Olives. Does anyone know why? To pray, to spend time with God early in the morning before the day began. And here's the reason, here's the reason. This is the first point we're gonna see here. Spending time with God at the beginning of the day Prepares us to meet the trials that come throughout the day. Spending time with God when? At the beginning of the day, prepares us to meet the trials that come throughout the day. That means this is one of the reasons why God calls us to spend time with Him in devotion in the morning. Because I have seen this in my life play over time and time again. That when I spend time with the Lord in the morning, and I'm daily in his word, receiving the lessons that he wants to teach me before the day begins, before the hustle of the day and the bustle of the day begins, he gives me lessons and principles. He may not tell me exactly what's going to happen, but he gives me principles that I can operate by. So when the trial that is coming comes... I'm ready for it. Friends, but many times as men fail and women fail in our brokenness and in our frailty, to spend time with Jehovah in the morning, when the trials come, we have no strength, we have no direction when facing that crisis. And so, this is why Jesus, our very perfect example, what did he do? He spent time with God before the day began. So that when the day came, what, regardless of how complex the trial was, and we're going to see a complex one here, regardless of how complex the trials were, he knew how to meet it. And so are you ready to see what the trial was? All right? Some of you know this story. It says, verse 2, early in the morning... He came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. In other words, some of your Bibles may say a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, this is what they did, verse 4. So Jesus is teaching. You imagine this in your sanctified imagination. He's teaching the people breaking down the word of God in certainty. And as he continues to do this throughout his ministry, it's very interesting, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the Sadducees, they're slowly losing their authority and the hold that they have on the people. So they decide, hey, we have to trip him up in some way. And so what do they do? They come and they bring to him while he's teaching, interrupts the teaching And they brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And we're going to see here, it's a woman that they themselves plotted to bring into the situation that she was. How do we know this? It continues, verse four. And they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery or this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us, that such should be what? Stoned. But what do you say? What sayest thou? This they said, what is the next two words? Testing him. So in other words, what was this? This was a test for him, right? It says that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Now, there's a few things that we get from this, few powerful lessons. One is we're seeing that this was a plot. A plot to get Jesus to what? To fail or to sin or to stumble in his ministry, to destroy his ministry. But in order to destroy him, do you see what they had to do? Do Yes. They had to destroy somebody else's life. So what they did was they set up a situation in which this woman, who was probably practicing a life of harlotry, they set up a situation in which they can bring together these two people and destroy this woman's life. And you could see that because... In the story itself, you're realizing this woman had no idea that in doing probably this job that she was doing that she would be caught and ultimately brought into this situation. But this is what happened. And in the situation, you could already see the deception and the wickedness of these men. Why? Because first of all, who was caught in the act? The woman. Now if you're being feared to the law of moses who should have been brought the man and the woman both of them but from the very start they already made a blunder in their own argument (laughs) they already made they already put a huge hole in their own argument they had already broken the very law that moses had set up in trying to accuse this woman so they brought the woman but they did not bring the man moses commanded that both parties are to be brought and they were to be brought does anyone know can anyone guess whose responsibility it was to bring the woman and the man that she had committed adultery with can anyone guess who was to bring if a if a woman was unfaithful to her husband Who was to bring the woman who was unfaithful and the man that she was unfaithful with? The husband. According to the law of Moses, the husband's duty was to bring his wife and the man that she had committed adultery with. And friends, right here, you already see a whole bunch of errors that these men made in doing this. And so they brought her, and as they brought her, friends, Jesus, do you think he knew what to do? He knew what they were doing. And do you think he knew how to handle the situation? Now, question. Going back to our previous point. Oh, it's still up on the screen, actually. Why do you think he knew how to handle it? Yeah. He already prayed, right? He spent time with his father. So when the crisis came, because he knew the word and he spent time with his father in prayer, he was ready. Friends, we can be that ready. When the devil brings a trial against us, we can be that ready if we spend time with God before the crisis comes, all right? So it says here in verse six, what does Jesus do in his calm nature? It says, Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. This is actually, I think, according to scripture, if we look throughout all the scripture, this is the second time that we see God writing. Do you know that? When was the first time that you saw God writing in Scripture? The commandments, right? He wrote them with his own finger, the Bible tells us. So God wrote the commandments with his own finger, but now we see God in human flesh, and where is he writing? On the ground in the dirt. Now, I wonder, what was he writing? Verse 7 says, So when they continued asking him, You see a comma there. It says he lifted up himself. Now, between that comma, it says, so when they continued asking him, and then the next word in your Bibles might be he lifted up, right? Now, between asking him and he lifted up, he lifted himself up, there is a major thing that happened, and we're going to look at this. This is our next statement that we're going to look at That's so potent. What happened? Because you remember... Ultimately, these men, this woman was delivered if we know the story, but how? How was she delivered? I want to read to you this statement. This statement can be found in Desire of Ages, all right? Desire of Ages and page 461. And I invite you to read this book. Friends, if you have any time, you can get it online. You can get it um, in the Library of Congress. You can get it in many different places. It's it's free digitally. This is one of the greatest expositions, I believe, to be inspired exposition on the very life of the Son of God. And so this is what it states here. Concerning these men, it says, impatient at his delay. Jesus is stooping down. He's writing in the ground. And they're like... Pay attention to what we're we're asking you. Impatient at his delay and apparent, apparent indifference, the accusers drew nearer, urging the matter upon his attention. What are you going to do? Now, we're going to come back to this. It says, but as their eyes following those of Jesus fell upon the pavement at his feet, their continence is what? Changed. Why? There, traced before them on the dirt, were the guilty secrets of their own lives. Friends, can you imagine that? You want to destroy the life of someone else in your zeal to destroy the life of the Messiah. And all of a sudden, as you're testing him, you look down on the ground and you see that he's writing your very sins in the ground that will change you immediately it continues by saying the people looking on saw the sudden change of expression because they they're not seeing what's written on the ground but they're seeing the eyes of those who do see what's written there and press forward to discover what it was that they were regarding with such astonishment and shame so what we're seeing here is that whoa jesus what does he do he writes the sins of the people on the ground it's almost like he's bringing them to the very edge of judgment day without executing judgment he's laying their sins out in the open their secret sins out in the open nobody knows who's doing what but the person who's doing it they know and so <laughs> you can only imagine what happens here now this shows us the wisdom of jesus friends and this is something that goes back to what we were studying in our sanctuary study. And this is something vital for us as God's people today. Notice if Jesus said, stone, if Jesus said, don't stone this woman, what could the people accuse Jesus of? Yeah. Breaking the law. What's that? Violating the law of Moses. But here's the other side, and this is where it becomes complex unless you know the scriptures. And he knew them. He knew the law of Moses. On the other hand, if Jesus says, stone the woman, what could happen? Does anyone know? Who could Jesus pose a threat to if he was in the process of calling people to commit capital punishment? Does anyone know? Who could he come into problems with? Say that again. The government. Because you remember who was ruling over Israel at that time? Rome. So Rome, now notice this, I want you to look at the balanced life of Jesus. Friends, above everything, above the many things that love is, love is balanced. It is the most balanced thing that you will ever experience. When a person experiences true love, it, is op- it operates in perfect balance. What do I mean? In Christ-like balance. If Jesus had told them to stone the woman, you remember, up until this point, and up until the time that Jesus was finally brought before Pilate, was Jesus ever seen according to what we have in the scriptures as a threat to the roman government no not once as a matter of fact when he finally mentioned something about caesar it was very it was like one sentence in all of the gospels and it was it was you could take it many ways but once you understand who caesar was at that time you understand what jesus meant jesus called him a sly fox is what Jesus called the Caesar that was ruling during his day. There were two. There was a, um, Augustus and then Tiberius. And I think he was referring more so to Augustus at that time. So as Jesus is saying these things, he never says anything necessarily against the ruling powers. And this is brilliant. Because his life was so balanced... The Roman government, secular government, never saw him as a threat. But question for you, when did Jesus, when was he seen? Even at that time, he was, he, it was because of peer pressure. But I'll say it for the sake of saying it. When was Jesus finally seen as a threat to the government of his day? Does anyone know? When was Jesus finally seen as a threat to the government of his time? Something had to happen. Because before that, throughout his whole entire life, he was never seen as a threat for the majority of his life, I should say. Was was that? Say that again, Brother John? Okay, okay. Healing people did bring him into disrepute with someone, but it wasn't Rome. But you're close. Yes, Suleiman. So Say that again. He said he had a kingdom. Okay, okay, okay. All right, that's close. That's very close. Something, guys, had to happen. Jesus would have never gotten into the hands of the Romans unless something happened first okay yes he said he was king and i believe he said that even to not just to his people but even to Pilate. he says my kingdom is not of this world yes okay now question for you who did he say that god was his father to Yeah, the crowds of the Jews, right, that were following Christ, the, the, the leaders that were among those people that were always trying to be where he was for different reasons, whether they loved him or whether they hated him. So those groups now, one day, the leaders of the, that group that's following Jesus, the very teachers of the law, they come together and they say, we have to find a way to destroy this guy. It climaxed, especially after Lazarus' resurrection. Four days passed, Lazarus' body stinks. It was a Jewish tradition that not even God could resurrect someone after four days. And so Jesus delayed, and he waited to destroy that idea. Came, resurrected Lazarus, and the Bible tells us right after that resurrection, they came, And they said, all the leaders came together and they said, unless we kill him, the whole world will follow him. It's in the Bible. That's in the Bible. They actually said that. And so what did they do? They confederated with one of his followers. Who's that? Judas. Betrayed him, got him into the hands of his accusers, which was? the leaders, the religious people and leaders of his time, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they took him and brought him to who? Pontius Pilate. So friends, until that time, there was no interaction with Jesus and the Romans in terms of being seen as a threat. It's not until apostate religion coerced and peer pressured the state, Rome, Pilate at that time, even Pilate seeing Jesus, did Pilate know that Jesus was innocent? Yeah. So I find no fault with this man. His wife, even by vision, sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with this just man. But because of peer pressure and because the religious leaders were seeking to coerce him, Friends Pilate had Jesus crucified. You know what that tells us? That tells me that just like Jesus, we must be a balanced people today. We must be wise in how we operate before society. If there is anything that people think of when they think of the Seventh-day Adventist church, it should be a people that, while being peculiar, are balanced. Does that make sense? A people that, while peculiar and different, are balanced in their operations. This is what the world must see. We are even told that in inspired writings. We must stand for righteousness But even in how we stand, we must do so righteously. It is not just about being right. It is about being righteous. There's a difference. There's a big difference, right? And this is what Jesus was. The love that permeated his life was a love that was wise. Wise as serpents. Armless as doves. So, as we look at this now, we see this in Jesus's life. Jesus sees the situation with this woman. He understands the complexity of it. He knows if he goes either way, there's a pitfall. And he operates in such wisdom that he writes their sins on the sand. And then it says in verse 7 of John chapter 8 So, when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, having them see their own secret sins written on the ground he says to them all right he that is without sin among you let him cast a stone at her what's that let him cast the first stone right so do you see what happens here this is why i always read this statement and i'm like okay yeah if he said that that would have power but but now we see why it has power because they just saw their own sins in the sand since that no one knew about, they just saw it and they're like, what was their response? Verse 8. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning with who? The oldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Beautiful. He never had to say anything. Do you you realize that? All he had to do was just write on the ground, their secret sins, they were gone. You know what that tells me? That tells me something vital, friends. When it comes to our lives, in the way that we operate with others, we must be careful. Jesus loves the accuser and the accused. Do you think he loved the people who were accusing this woman? Yes. And do you think he loved the woman? Absolutely, right? But what was he seeking to do? This is a powerful lesson that we must must know and emulate as Christians. Jesus loves the accuser and the accused. But sometimes in seeking to save both groups, he must temporarily separate them. At times, he must separate the toxic from the one experiencing the toxicity. Does that make sense? that means this is why when it comes to situations whether it be of abuse whether it comes to situations where things are very intense and insanely toxic and you have someone experiencing that toxicity it is vital that what does love do love loves both parties but love understands that there must be a separation at times this is why Jesus, while being a powerful minister, he understood that there were people seeking to destroy his life. Does anyone know that what every child you hear today in some situations, you hear people say, man, what is the typical thing that you hear people saying today that they want their children to be when they grow up? Especially if they're in quote-unquote, according to society standards, high-class families, they say, when you grow up, son, I want you to be a, yeah, that's true, but, but give me some specific occupations. Uh, was that? A doctor? Doctor. All right, give me another one. A lawyer or a president, all right? Or a lawyer, right? And friends, this is the same way that it was with the Jewish nation. The Jewish nation, every father and mother desired their child to grow up to be a religious leader and to guide the people. But you remember, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders at that time, did Jesus love them? Was it expected that those who would rise with religious power would go through that line? Yes. It was expected that they would be scribes, they would be Pharisees, and they would be rabbis teaching the people through this means. Now, was Jesus a Pharisee? No. He didn't go through that common line. So Christ, we're seeing here, he wasn't a Pharisee. Did the Pharisees like Jesus? No. They were seeking to kill him. Christ, while seeking to reach out to them, if you look at the Scriptures, he ever maintained a respectful distance from them because he knew that they were trying to destroy his work. He sought to reach them, no doubt. But he knew that the toxic level at which they were operating, he could not only not be a Pharisee, but friends, he had to keep a safe distance. We're actually told in the book Desire of Ages that there were many things that Jesus refrained from doing, healings that he refrained from doing, Because he knew that if he did it, people that he even told after he healed them, don't say anything. You've probably read that in your Bibles. After he healed the leper, he said, go to the priest, show yourself, but keep silent. Why? Because we're told in desire of ages, had things been done in the opposite way, it would have cut his ministry short. He had to always operate in wisdom, standing for God while doing so in a way that caused his ministry to go on as long according to prophecy as it was supposed to go on. But friends, at times that required distance. The reason that I say this, the reason that I bring up this point is because there are times where people experience that toxicity from other people. And they ask themselves, man, but if I love them, I will stay here and I will undergo that toxicity. But according to what true love really looks like, sometimes true love in situations of abuse calls for a time of separation. Does that make sense? True love does not say, hey, I love you. I'm gonna stay here and undergo that abuse, whether it be friend or foe. God says you can love that person while maintaining a distance from that individual for a time. All right, so as we look at this here, we see Jesus doing that with this very woman. He saves her, and friends, in saving her, he had to expose other people. The result was there was a separation. Those people left The Bible says in verse 10, When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Verse 11, she said, No man, Lord. Now look at the balance of Jesus. Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Now remember, this woman was caught in the act. Even if it was a plot, was she still caught in the act of adultery? Yes, so notice this. According to what we're seeing here, was she guilty still? Yes, but what does Jesus do? He delivers her because God knows the entirety of the situation. He delivers her even while she was a sinner. The Bible tells us that God loves the world in this way that while we were yet righteous, Christ died for us. No, friends, while we were yet sinners, guilty, enemies of God, Christ came and he died for us. This is why sometimes, and I've experienced that in my life, even after I've done something wrong against God, the very next moment, instead of seeing his wrath I see his deliverance. How many of you can ever testify to that? The very moment when you have done wrong, you're expecting judgment to follow and blessings follow. You know why that happens? It's not because God condones what we did, but God knows that it is not wrath that leads men to repentance. It is his goodness. Therefore, we are not treated as we deserve but we are treated as Christ deserves. And so the Bible tells us here, look at the balance of Jesus. Neither do I condemn thee. (laughs) Go and sin no more. In other words, I forgive you. That's one part. But then the next part is what? Don't go back there. (laughs) Come away from that life. Live a life for my glory. Friends, we are actually told in the Zara of Ages that from that moment, Jesus, emulating the character of God's mercy and love to that woman, it states from that moment she experienced a revival in her heart. She never went back to that lifestyle. This is the powerful thing that we're seeing about the mercy of God. And then what does Jesus say? In that context, he then says in verse 12, I am the light of the world. In other words, I came to reveal God. But what did you come to reveal about God? In context, that God is merciful to sinners. God seeks to deliver those who are unworthy of deliverance. God seeks to save the guilty by taking them from guilt to righteousness, by forgiving them, and then calling them to live a holy life. Now, as we look at this, I wanted us to look at um, one more statement, but before we go there, actually, yeah, let's go there. We're going to look at this statement, and and this is something that I want us to see as we look and we end this message. A few scriptures we're going to look at, and this blew my mind because my friend and I were talking about this. I was in California a few weeks ago, and we were sitting down and just talking about God, talking about his love and his mercy and our ministerial experiences that we had gone through. And he said, Akeem, you know why many people fail in their relationship with God is because of how they think of Jesus, what they think of him and and his posture towards them. And I was like, brother, break that down for me a little more. And he was explaining to me the reality. And I, I was talking to someone else in my family about this. We know this text John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But do you know the verse that comes after that? It says for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. So when people say that the purpose of Christ coming into the world was to judge it, was to condemn it, they're wrong. <laughs> the purpose of Christ coming into the world was to save it, not to condemn it. And so as we look at the character of Christ, that's John chapter 3 and verse 17, we see that Jesus' posture towards humanity is one of forgiveness, He is extending his hand to save and justify, not to condemn. The person who receives this forgiveness will bear the fruit of a forgiven life, which is a pure heart. This purity will then be seen in our words and in our lives. Jesus actually said that in Matthew 12, verse 37... He says the very thing that condemns, because God is judge, Christ does sit as a judge. It is true. The Bible calls him that. But do you know what it is that he has that actually brings about the condemnation as he judges? This is very crucial to understand. It is not that he himself, as judge, condemns. He decides cases, but there's something that he possesses that either brings condemnation or acquits us. And here it is. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 37 actually tells us, it is our words that will justify or condemn. The life that we live is being recorded God has a record of how we operate in this world. And it is that when brought up in judgment, if it is under the blood, will not condemn us. But if a man or a woman continues living a life of unrighteousness, Jesus is trying to guide them step by step to victory. It is that life That will judge them in the last day. Does that make sense? God stands to save. But he says if a person doesn't take hold of that forgiveness and salvation, their own works and words is what will judge them in the last day. And the result after that yes, God does bring about destruction but it is because we have chosen our own way. It continues by saying, the purity will then be seen in our words and in our lives. However, the person who rejects this opportunity to be pardoned places themselves in a situation where they condemn themselves. While Christ judges the world, he does so in laying before the world the evidence of its words and works. That's why in our last presentation on the sanctuary, we covered the investigative judgment, a judgment in which all works and words are examined. In other words, by their own words and works, the wicked condemn themselves. I want to read this to you as we close. This is our last scripture. This is in Proverbs chapter 8. Powerful text that brings this out. Proverbs chapter 8, and this is what it says here. Speaking of wisdom, the Bible tells us Jesus is our wisdom, by the way. Proverbs chapter 8, verses 35 and 36. It says there, for whoso finds me, wisdom says, finds life and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But listen to this. It says, but he that sins against me wrongs his own soul. All they that hate me Love death. So, in other words, when an individual does wrong, and as life goes on, things come against him, trials that maybe came against him because of that wrongdoing, sometimes the consequences that come after doing evil, is it God doing that? Not necessarily. Many times, friends, it is the unfolding of a harvest. (laughs) which we had first planted. Does that make sense? God is saying to us, I'm not out to get you. (laughs) I'm not out to destroy you. I didn't come into the world to destroy. The beautiful thing about it is, if we accept Christ, it's a powerful thing, even after doing all the wrong, even after planting seed upon seed of rebellion, Christ can come into the picture, and he could help us to start planting good seed. Yes, new seed. So that by the time the harvest of rebellion comes, it is combated with the harvest of righteousness. Hence, we don't receive the fullness of the seeds that we sow. That's how good God is. Hence, the Bible says, When we come to Christ, we can redeem the time, the time that was lost. We can maybe not go back, but we can begin to live and plant a better seed, which results in a better harvest. Friends, the reason that we went over this story today is because I wanted us to see that Christ and the Godhead are not against you they're actually working in such a way to try to save. And if we do not resist, the powerful book, Steps to Christ, tells us, if we do not resist that working, we will be saved. If we do not resist. In other words, it's just to let, allow God to do the work that he wants to do through trial, through storm, and even through calm. Is this your desire? To allow Christ to do for you what he did and I for what he did for this woman? Friends, and I ask you to stand with me as we close in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, I pray that you can do in our lives what you did this woman, and I, and I know, Lord, actually, you have done for many of us that very thing. You have brought us out of the life that we once used to live. Father, you are still working on us, still chiseling away at us, chiseling away at the rough edges that may make us in certain areas of our lives imbalanced to create a life of more Christ like balance, Lord. Not the balance of the world but a balance that, while making us peculiar, also makes us loving and lovable Christians. Father, do this work in our lives and save us. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Christ might be saved. Save us, we pray, in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Please look us up online at the1 80.org and at the 180 YouTube channel. Please reach out to us with any questions or prayer requests. Until next time, thanks for listening.